The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the one who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if y'all have your summer books yet uh, that you read, whether you're going to the beach or on a trip. Maybe you might grab those. But, you know, I was reading a quote the other day. I was reading a little bit of C.S. Lewis not too long ago, and he he made a comment about books that we read. It was actually really interesting because it's a perfect... Uh, critique on us currently is that we typically uh, read books that are very contemporary to us. He says that as, and this is very professorial, he was a professor in Oxford, if you're uncertain about who C.S. Lewis is, he wrote and and, and spoke in, you know, England uh, years ago, but yet he said, we need to revisit ancient texts. It's really important for us to revisit books that are older, um, and that are maybe even classics to remind us of who we are historically and read language that, that mines uh, out things that contemporary literature might not uh, and forces us to see. One of those I think is a good one is called Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read that, maybe you've heard of it before. It's kind of an allegory that John Bunyan centuries ago, uh, a, an old Baptist preacher, wrote um, it's just basically an allegory of the Christian life. There's a guy named Christian. It's kind of simple, actually. It's be a beautiful thing to read if you've never read it. Has a backpack. He's trying to get to the celestial city. 
uh, and he's trying to get there and he meets all these people along the way and has these adventures and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and one of those that he meets is this character that actually will, is unwilling to actually say his name, but he says he's from the town of Fair Speech. And he says that this town, and, and, and Christian says, I've, I think I've heard of this town. It's a very wealthy city. It's, I've heard some great things about it. But he realizes soon that this guy called Mr. Facing Both Ways is quite duplicitous. That he says, he, he, that Mr. Facing Both Ways says, oh, I'm headed to the celestial city too, Christian. I'm going also. But the longer he begins to talk, the, the more he realizes what he says and what he does are two different things. This is what one commentator said regarding Mr. Facing Both Ways. You may trust some men as far as you can see them, but no further, for new company makes them new men. Like water, they boil or freeze according to the temperature. Some do this because they have no principles. They're of the weathercock pers persuasion and turn with the wind. Their mill grinds any grist that you bring to it if the ready money is forthcoming. And they go with every wind, north, south, east, west, north, east, wherever it may blow in all the world. Like frogs, they live on land or, wa or water and are not of particular of that which is. They believe in the winning horse and are to be bought by the dozen, like mackerel, but he who does give a penny for them wastes his money. Others are shifty, they're good-natured, and that they must, their must needs agree with everybody. They are cousins of Mr. Anything, and their brains are in other people's heads. It's a fascinating thing because we just read a passage in James, that James is writing to a group of Christians. And what he's saying to them is he's saying, you have this great belief, but you're showing in every way that you live a whole counter lifestyle to that. When you encounter people that are maybe someone that can give you a leg up, you're, you're willing to just change immediately. Your mind goes there. Maybe they can give you more status. Maybe they can give you uh, more, more notoriety. Maybe you can feel like you can belong more. But once you are in the midst of those people, your faith changes. And so does your work. James is heavy on this, and this is the big deal, because what we're talking about this morning is we've kind of talked in a row of, of questions. We've been actually really looking intently at questions of Christianity. We're asking the questions that I hope, and someone even asked me this week about that, why are we looking at these questions? Because I think, and I hope there are people out there in the audience now even asking these things. Maybe you're, you're in that place of being burned or bored or cynical Christianity in the church. And maybe you would say you're a follower of Jesus. How are we actually entertaining and discussing important questions that, that actually engage with the world around us? And today's question, different than even reliability of the Bible or those things, is probably one that is most affected or impacted us. It's how Christians have hurt people. Simply that. How has Christ, how's, how's Christianity or Christians carried what they have called the good news and yet have harmed people? Not just today, but over centuries. It was uh, Oz Guinness who said, over the course of 2,000 years, there has consistently been one unanswerable objection to the Christian faith. Christians. 
like Mr. Facing Both Ways, one of the things I really want to charge to us this morning, and particularly if you would say you're a follower of Jesus, is for us to admit and humble ourselves to see what we really need, where we really are kind of facing both ways, that we proclaim a gospel that is to be that transformative, and yet what we do is we exclude and push people away. This passage in particular is talking about the poor, but we're, and we're going to look at the poor themselves and the need that the Bible talks about that, but also can expand out further into people that we exclude that are all marginalized. And this is going to push us. It should. It pushes me. I mean, even preparing for this is a humbling thing. I, I, I think so often so many people look at pastors and think of me as somebody that's supposed to get up and, yeah, I got this figured out. I got this outline for you. Here's the way to live this one out, you know. Look, I'm the same as you. I have to read this passage, intently look at it, and I am weighed by it. How do we find ourselves in it? There are two simple things I think we need to see in this, and I myself do too. The first is, how do we admit that we are partial? That we just need to admit it. James kind of is trying to get the people here to admit it, the Christians there to admit it. And the second thing is to submit ourselves, admit and submit, that we need to submit ourselves under the authority of what James would call the royal law, that we belong to something bigger than what is ourselves. You know, as he begins this, James is writing about how faith must show itself in work, that we admit first that we, if we are Christians, and we first have to admit, then we miss the mark. <laughs> And that is, in some ways, this sermon could be summed up in like two minutes, which would be really excited for you. Um, I will go a little longer than that. But, uh, but we have to admit, and, and he does this so beautifully, that we are partial. And I want to say, first off, let's, let's, let's expand that, that this is a part of our human nature. We want to belong inside and keep others out. We want to, and the reason for that is we want to have this intimacy. We want to have a connection. We want to know that we are a part of something that's valuable because we want to be known as valuable. And so we particularly do that in many ways. We use wealth for that. That is a very easy way to do it. And it's a very easy means for us to do it. We know that we do those things. We do that in our neighborhoods. I mean, think about how often we're thinking about where we can move and we're always looking at how can we fit into a certain group that may be always above the bar financially, socially, may just be right above us, but we're going to try and fit into that world. He's, he's going through those channels to say, we, we try and make ourselves into those circles. Uh, David Brooks, who's, a, who's uh, one of my favorite op-ed writers, he wrote about not just in a religious sense, but in a full sense, how we need to admit that we are partial. He said in his uh, article, he said, people like us. Maybe it's time to admit the obvious. We don't really care about diversity all that much in America, even though we talk about it a great deal. Maybe somewhere in their, this country, there is truly diverse neighborhood in which a black Pentecostal minister lives next to a white anti-globalization activist, who lives next to an Asian short-order cook, who lives next to a professional golfer, who lives next to a postmodern literature professor and a cardiovascular surgeon. But I've never been to or heard of that neighborhood. 
Instead, what I've seen all around the country is people making strenuous efforts to group themselves with people who are basically like themselves. That's the New York Times and the Atlantic writing that. It's not just, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's a part of our problem in our hearts. But what I want to address specifically as, as, a, as a minister of the gospel is to say, how do we as the church, how have we done that? Because I'll tell you one thing that I get <clears throat> often about Christianity and about Christians is how we have hurt people over the years. How Christianity has been a part of massive historical issues and either been silent or been active, you know, active in engaging that. Whether we could go back to like things like the Crusades or things during, you know, Nazi Germany, there, there's all parts of those things, even up till now, even personal lives where maybe you know, maybe you've been harmed by someone or maybe you have harmed someone and heard that. How do you deal with that? How do we, how do we handle that as Christians? The largest thing that I think a lot of times it's easy to address those first with some sort of theoretical thing. I actually want to first engage us with the personal. What James says here, which is very interesting, he says in verse 8 through 11, he starts, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convi- you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point becomes guilty of it all. See, what, what he's getting at here is he's saying, we are moralists. <laughs> we feel as though as if, if we hold most things together, we're doing okay. He's addressing these Christians essentially saying, look, because you simply are not murdering someone or committing adultery or doing things that are considered culturally, maybe even culturally religious or culturally Christian, more heinous than others, that you're doing okay. But because you break one, you break all. One commentator said it beautifully. He said that the law of God is, lo- is not just multiple window panes. You can look in this room here and look at the beautiful stained glass. So if one of these small panes and one of these is broken out, you could possibly replace that. What he's saying is the law, no, it's one giant pane. You break one, it's all broken. And what he's trying to get us to understand is that you and I both need to submit ourselves to the fact that we do not hold the law perfectly. We're moralists. We want to live by something that keeps us in, right? That's what moralism is. It's it's trying to to keep ourselves good so that we're accepted. Try not to hurt anybody. I haven't really hurt anybody, so we kind of seclude ourselves. But what he's saying is when people come into their assembly, that these people who are not of any wealth at all, that they're treated with partiality, that, that they're say, maybe they give them a nod, but the seats at the table are given to those who are of wealth, are given to those who are around them. And there needs to be specific confession and repentance for us. Before we address any of the like, actual theoretical things, we need to be a humble people to say and admit that we do that. We are the ones who do not want to have anybody have our seat at the table. We want to keep people out and keep ourselves in. We have harmed people. This is why we do confession. 
We do confession corporately, and we need to be doing confession individually out of this room because we need to admit the fact that we are those people. That is our hearts. And we want to keep the law as much as possible, to keep it here and keep it there so that we can feel like we're good. But guys, we, we've all been lawbreakers because we've broken the whole pain. We will leave these doors and we come in here and we look at everyone around us and size ourselves up. We will leave here, go to our families, go to our jobs tomorrow, go to the things that we do, and we are constantly looking at every single person around us, sizing ourselves up, one up, one down, to see are we okay, are we in? And then particularly for those who are poor, for those who are, that the Bible draws out from beginning to end, those who see, because here's the thing, the poor know their need. They don't bring anything. Even pulling here this morning, I was uh, uh, just seeing it again, this number of people in our city who are without home, right? And we can talk all about, I, I don't, do not get wrapped up in the complications of you know, not giving money to somebody on the side of the road or those kind of things. Stop for a second with me. I'm not just saying this to you, I'm saying this to me. Let's stop making those kind of thoughts, complications and exclusions, and just simply think He is calling us out as He is the Christians then that we exclude the poor. Is our faith moving into action? to address the real needs of those around us? Are we liking to have the comfortable seats at the table, as he's saying? This is a theme that runs all through the Scripture, all through it. You see, here's what's interesting about it. When, when, when James talks about this, he talks about this assembly, right? He says in verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring, fine clothing comes into your assembly and your poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here good, in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is pushing us to say, it's not, this is not a social program. This is the heart of the gospel. If we truly believe that Jesus came in the fashion that he did, he didn't come in a social program, he came in flesh. If he really came in that way, and what did he say? I have no place to lay my head. Then how do we see those around us who have nothing? And here's what James does that's interesting, and you, it's easy to miss. When he says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, the definite article is not actually in assembly. It's your assembly, not the assembly. So what he's saying is, it's not just someone who comes into a church building. It's anywhere. James is being intentionally vague to say, we exclude everywhere, not just in one place. And notice the other side of this, he also says, um, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. He's not talking about proximity in the table, like here's the best seat and here's the other one. He's basically saying in a slap of mockery to the face that where they need to sit is, what, they're not even letting them have a seat. They're even standing or becoming a footstool. How are we 
admitting the reality that we do this. Now, does this exclude, and I want to encourage you as we talk about this, does this call us to say that, okay, and some of you have experienced this or harmed others by this or been harmed by this. How, does, how do we deal with the reality of this? The reality is, yes, we must be humble and admit who we really are, that we are in need of the gospel. That Christianity for years has done exclusion, not just of the poor, but of others. It has harmed many people. And yet, what we know is true is that Jesus himself condemns any harm that's done. It doesn't negate the fact that the gospel is true. See, Christianity, praise God, is not based on us. Oftentimes, and I want to encourage you if you've been one of those who's been harmed by Christianity or Christians, that Christianity is not based on worshiping Christians. It's based on worshiping Christ, as my good friend said to me this morning, Bing Davis. See, the centerpiece of Christianity comes from one who put himself in that position so that we can see ourselves for who we really are and admit that so that we can humbly approach and give those seats to other people. It's fascinating because what we need to do is learn how do we live in that context. One amazing um, <clears throat> uh, uh, theologian said this, any sharing of the gospel in a pluralistic world after two millennia of Christianity has to begin with a humble acknowledgement of betrayals of the gospel by the church of self. These betrayals have to be identified concretely, not covered over in generalizations, and they will vary from one cultural context to another. So we have to specifically admit that. We also have to be driven back to the, the founder himself, Jesus, because the link to belief and outcome is not based on us. It's based on who is our belief in. It's based on Christ. You see, the, the thing we have to submit ourselves to is, is the one who started it, is the one who we founded on, not ourselves. This is what calling Christians to live in sanctification is. See, sanctification is a process that the Bible talks about. This sounds like a big word, but we need to think about this for a minute. It's a process of us becoming more like Christ, not more like each other. And so the difference in Christianity and what we need to understand and what makes us humble and not only to admit and yet then submit ourselves is to say that we are becoming more like Jesus, looking to him as what the Bible says, the author and perfecter of our faith, looking to him in those ways. We know we need to know that we are really partial so we can know we can submit to him. Let's look at this passage here when it says submitting. It says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. What does he says? The character of Jesus is the royal law. This is what it means. The royal law means to belong to Christ. We have to admit who we are, but we then submit ourselves, not to trying to be better moralists, not trying to shore up. That's why James goes into this to talk about what we need, he's about the law and breaking the law. He's not trying to tell us to keep more law. He's saying the royal law that is in Christ, that means you belong to him. And if that is true, it means something totally different. It means you can belong in this world without the glasses. You can begin to start taking off those glasses 
to where you look at everyone through a certain lens. The amazing thing about what James uses in this language as he talks about people coming into the assembly and that you look and pay attention to, that word actually means a pageant. It means that there's a pageant going on, almost like a beauty pageant. What being in Christ, the royal law belonging to him means that you can, you, you can rest from pageantry, from having to walk in and hopefully being in a certain position or belonging in a certain place that you've longed for all your days. Because here's why this is such powerful news to those who are poor and for those who are wealthy, it's so hard because when you're poor and the Lord of the universe comes to you, the Lord of the universe who owns everything and says, you value because I love you? and you have a place and a mission in this world, what does that do to somebody who has nothing? And for those of us who have so much, how easy is it for us to say, that's, that's fine news, but there's so many other things that tell me that, that I have. Why, where does that news fit in? Maybe it has a, a healthy priority, but does it define my identity? That's what he's getting at. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie before. It's called Cinderella Man. It's a really, it's kind of an older movie. I don't know how much acclaim it got uh, based on a true story. I'm not sure how true it is. Uh, I'm sure there's some Hollywooded up things. But Russell Crowe plays the, uh, this famous boxer named Jim Braddock from the, the era of the Depression. And essentially, I don't know if you watch or maybe you've read Grapes of Wrath or things like that where you, where you really kind of put yourself in the position of thinking, okay, what was it like for them to go through the Great Depression? What was it really like for them to be in such great need and in and, and, and desperate time to look around and to say, where am I literally going to make ends meet? During this particular movie, uh, Jim Braddock, he's a boxer, he's, has good relationships and friends, and all of a sudden when the depression hits, he hurts his hand at one, at one point, he's unable to work. He can't pay for bills in his house. He actually has, an, uh, apparently, I think this was common, sent his children away, and it was j- just to be taken care of at some place or some, by someone who could do it. And he shows him walking through what used to be this parlor of all his friends, where he felt like he was socially a part of. And then he, he knocks on the door, he takes off his hat, and when you see his, cat, his arm in a cast, and he begins to walk through where all his friends were, all the people that held him in high esteem, and he begins to beg for just small change to try and simply buy back his children. Not even just to turn the lights on, just to say, I need enough money just to bring my children home. If you want to know what a beautiful picture of the gospel is, that is what God has actually done. God has, by voluntary admission, put himself in the place to bring us back, to purchase us back, not by putting on a crown, not by coming in pomp and circumstance, but by coming to buy back his children in humble flesh, shabby clothing. It says that that in the Old Testament, it says that there was no form, no beauty, nothing that people looked at Jesus and thought, oh man, I need to follow that guy. Nothing. 
He, he submits himself. We can submit because Jesus himself has submitted himself to this very ethic. What is the royal law? It's royal because Jesus is the royalty. And yet, what does he do? He comes, he doesn't show partiality. He even comes not to his friends, but to his enemies. First century and 21st century. Think again for a second. How does a wealthy middle to upper middle class, white to African American person in this area of our town connect to Jesus Christ? How, does it, how do we do that? How does somebody in the 21st century has nothing to do in terms of interest, city, life, job, anything at all have to do with Jesus? And yet he comes and he puts himself in a position to bring you and I in. It's insanely profound. Because that's what this table is about. You see, this table here is that very picture of it. It's a picture of submission. It's a picture of, you want to know how we become more like Christ? It's through Jesus, the one who submits himself. There's a word in here that is used over, and we've, we've actually sang this wonderful song about it, mercy triumphs over judgment. You may have heard that in, even in the passage. Verse 13, for ju- judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is mercy? Mercy is used in multiple ways in the Bible, but here specifically, here's what it's talking about. It's actually a differentiation that mercy is associated with people in their misery. In other words, mercy in this context means you actually identify and empathize with people who need mercy because you have received it that you've so been bathed in it, clothed in it. Mercy drives you to the end of yourself. I love how this one theologian said, mercy itself, I have seen myself and my worst enemy doesn't even know the worst about me because we so need God's mercy. What transforms us to live an ethic of mercy is to know the reality of mercy at this table. It's to know this. It's to know that Jesus himself submits himself under you so you can live out the royal law, a law, he says, not a law of any kind, a law of liberty, a law of liberty. That means it frees you. It lifts you up out of all the restraints, all the moralism that you and I live towards so that we can belong, so we can keep people out and keep ourselves in. We don't have to do, the gospel reverses that. And if that's true, it should reverse everything about how you come to him and come to other people. It means you can come to this table, as C.S. Lewis said beautifully. He said this, listen. He said, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ is is there, the glorifier and the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden in him. When you come to this table, this is what we're receiving. We're receiving a Savior who submitted himself humbly and perfectly under that law. 
He fulfilled the royal law. He was it. And yet he gives himself for you. There's no amount of need or keeping a law that you need to come take this table. There's no partiality. This table's not partial. It's not partial to your skin color. It's not partial to your bank account. It's not partial to your thoughts. It's not partial to the fact that you are perfect. It's partial to the fact only through someone who submitted himself under you, Jesus Christ. 